been planning a western. This is Mr. Hannaford's night. Let's save the questions for him, huh? You two are very close, aren't you? Yes, I'd like to ask you about that. Why? Come on, Hunter. Ah, why do you think you have to be as rude as he is? As rude as you are, in print anyway. I liked your last one. Yeah, sure. No, I know that it was it was repetitive, but for what it was, it worked. Yeah, well, she wasn't that kind to me in her review. Not that you did me too much harm. I mean, how much harm can you do to the third biggest grocer in movie history? They make that much harm. Yes, did you know that when his own production company goes public, that your friend there stands to walk away with $40 million? Yeah, and she's going to say that I'm going to keep on writing that I, I, I stole everything from you, Skipper. I'm never going to walk away from that. But it's all right to borrow from each other. What we must never do is borrow from ourselves. Come on. <laughs> You are listening to TMB DOS. They must be destroyed on site. The following podcast may contain language and discussions of a frank and adult nature, and spoilers regarding the films discussed are always to be expected. Thank you for joining us. Now start the show, Dr. Rausch. They must be destroyed on site! And welcome back to They Must Be Destroyed on Site, episode 142, and I am your host, Lee. I'd hoped to ride with the naked ladies, Russell, and I'm joined by my co-host, Daniel. I thought you knew about the midgets, Harper. How are you doing, sir? <laughs> I'm doing great. This is... Uh, what a podcast. All right. <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, we're going to be looking at a brand new 2018 movie. <laughs> we never do this. We never do yeah. this. Of course, this one was shot between the years of 1970 and 1976. Mm-hmm. But post production, there, 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 there is post production is a bitch. Especially, you know, it, sometimes post production takes 48 years. Especially when like a totalitarian regime like holds your film hostage, basically. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, we're gonna be looking at Orson Welles. Lost Picture, the, the, his last film, The the Other Side of the Wind, that uh, everyone's been wanting to see the entire thing for, Jesus, 40 years now, basically, almost? Yeah, there were there were rumors of that, like, going back to the early 70s, they were shooting it up through, like, 76 or so. Post-production was still in progress at the time that Wells died in 85. Mm-hmm. And I know there was, uh, there was talk of, you know, sort of doing a quickie release, you know, like a bunch of companies wanted to kind of capitalize on Wells' death and just release some cheapy bullshit version of this. Oya Kodar, who's in the film, who was uh, Wells' companion over the last, you know, 25 years of his life or so, fought it. And, you know, some say she kind of got in the way of some, you know. <laughs> anyway, you know, she she was she was very strong-willed about it. But uh, finally, it's, it's been released on Netflix. Um, I've personally been wanting to see this since I read about it because I read a Wells biography. I went, read a couple of Wells biographies in either 98 or 99. So I've been personally wanting to see this film for 20 years. Nice, nice. Yeah, so uh, we're going to get into that. I don't know how, you know, it depends on how our conversation goes. Usually, if you've listened to this podcast, we just sort of, meander into different things that we want to talk about so we'll we'll see how in-depth we get here because man 
there's a lot behind the scenes with this picture. This right, history. right. Yeah, no, I, I, so I intentionally did not spend a lot of time on the kind of backstory. I mm-hmm. kind of wanted to discuss the film as a film, although discussing the film is also going to be about discussing, I mean, it's, it's deeply metatextual. So there's yeah. really no way to divorce the film from the way it's made from, you know, Wells's life. And, you know, so hopefully we'll just kind of bounce around some different topics and, and kind of have a, have a, I think there's going to be a really interesting conversation in this. At least I, at least I hope there is. <laughs> I, I think so. I think so. I had some, I had, I definitely have some thoughts about it. We have one comment from Derek, uh, Bourgeois, 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 mm-hmm. Bourgeois, 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 maybe. Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm sorry, Derek. Um, Bolognese, uh, Borgios, Bord Borgios could be any could be any one of those. Uh, get an American name, damn it! But no, uh, he he left a comment for our last wave episode. Said awesome episode for an awesome film with in depth multiple interpretations to it. So uh, thank you very much, sir. Yeah, awesome. Mm. We 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 aim to please. Yeah, was he the one who requested it to begin with? He might have. I don't. I, I actually tried to search back in the Facebook group to find out who fucking requested it, and I couldn't. I couldn't okay. find it, so I don't know. If you're still in the group, let us know. If you're still listening, we'd love to. We'd love to know that we finally got around to your request. Yeah, because I think we've only maybe over the span of the last couple of years that the Facebook groups existed, we've sort of held fast at like between seventy six and seventy eight members. So I, if we've ever, we might have lost maybe two people here and there and gained another person back or something. But yeah. that's about it. So yeah, so that's we, we, we're big time professional podcasters with seventy eight <laughs> people in our like extended engagement pool. I, I I like it. I like it. Our dedicated uh, zealots who uh, yeah. yeah listen to every episode, care what we have to say. <laughs> it's nice to know. It's nice to know that my voice is going out to literally dozens of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And and some of them are just people who is like. It shows up on their device every week, and they're like, "What is this again? <laughs> did, I, did I subscribe to this?" Hell, that, that's pretty much my response to it. You know, mm-hmm. shows up like, "Oh, when? I guess there's a new episode." Well, I'm not going to listen to that. Yeah. <laughs> so briefly, we should probably mention that William Golden died. <laughs> uh, yeah, we are right- recording this on the day William Golden died. I found out this morning on you know just on Twitter or. Maybe it was on. Yeah, I think it was on Twitter. I saw it, and uh, yeah, no, um, Goldman. In case uh, anybody doesn't know, he was a guy who got to start in the film industry, uh, screenwriting in the late '60s. Um, he did some um, some kind of for hire uh, adaptation work. His first big movie was uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Right. He won an Oscar for that. A few years later, he'd won another for uh, All the President's Men, uh, which he said was the only film that he uh, would not, you know. If he had had a chance to go back and do all of the films again, that's the one film he would not do again. He also wrote two um, really amazing books about screenwriting. One truly astonishing book and one very good book, I should say. Um, (laughs) Adventures in the Screen Trade, which was uh, published in 83, which actually is really worth reading in context with the film we're reviewing because it is very much about kind of Hollywood in the um, 70s and kind of in... Goldman's kind of career, kind of what Holly, you know, so a lot of these like Hollywood parties and that sort of thing, you know, you sort of get a sense of what the environment was like if you were kind of like this Hollywood screenwriter around that time. And then, um, in, uh, I think in 2000 or 2001, he published, uh, Which Lie Did I Tell? 
more adventures in the screen trade, which is kind of a sequel to that, um, which is not quite as essential reading, but also he has this very kind of acerbic wit and very, you know, he's very aware of kind of his place in the pecking order. He spent a lot of years kind of in the wilderness, you know, not really making anything. Mm-hmm. And um, he's just very honest about, you know, kind of what Hollywood was as a business and, you know, kind of you try to make good shit, but a lot of times you just end up, I mean, he wrote the ghosts in the darkness yeah. and, you know, like you read his version of that and then he published in um which lie did i tell and that sounds like a fucking amazing like movie and then you see the finished version it's wow this is a piece of shit and it's you know and the reasons why it became a piece of shit are pretty clear and you know goldman's able to uh describe not just the the sort of like you know he's not precious about his own writing and he doesn't you know he doesn't make you feel like you know oh i wrote this brilliant script and then they got fucked up it's it's often about like kind of just miscommunications and just kind of problems and just sort of personal personality quirks and things like that which is pretty amazing he also and this is the thing that everybody else knows about him he wrote both the book and the film of the princess bride right which is where i'm seeing most people kind of talking about the princess bride and i I fucking love the princess bride i saw the movie when i was like eight years old and it's been you know just kind of blew my (laughs) fucking little mind when i was a kid you know Uh, it was a great movie but i you know i almost feel like that's kind of the one that i don't want to talk about so much you know, no, he also did Goldman because he yeah. did so much other stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, also yeah did, go ahead. Mar- he also did Marathon Man. Like, Marathon Man. Yeah. He did. He did, he adapted. He wrote both again, yeah, and that's one of his novels that he adapted. Mm-hmm. And he talks a lot about the making of Marathon Man and Adventures in the Screen Trade. He also wrote the adaptation of Misery. He did a couple of yep. Stephen King adaptations later in his career. He did Dreamcatcher. Uh, he did Dream <laughs> Dreamcatcher again. That's one. That's one. I don't think I've ever seen him talk about how that how that got made, but I can imagine that was just one of those complete shit shows you know? here's how this one got made money 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 <laughs> yeah they paid him you know so you know my guess is it's one of those oh you've done some really great work for king adaptations in the past here we've got this idea about like uh you know we're gonna do this dream catcher thing and then he just kind of gets strung along can, into it can you can you make his this really terrible stephen king book into a passable movie no and, i can't no i can't but i i will try he did a bunch of script editing work. I mean, apparently he did uh, passes on like a few good men and a bunch of other stuff. I mean, you know, he um, Rob Reiner directed the Princess Bride, so you you know he would kind of work with directors and they would kind of bring in right. stuff. And so he did a ton of you know just kind of technical rewrite stuff. He was just one of those old Hollywood guys. And if you read his book, he he seemed like a really uh, decent guy. I never really heard anybody say anything truly nasty about him. And uh, it's just kind of a you know sad day to, to hear him pass because it was it was always it was always one of those guys that like you know I would have liked to have met him one day. You know, right? Just, you know. You know, 86, so, you know. Yeah, no, I mean, he had a good life. I was, it's kind of surprising because even when I was like reading his books in like the early 2000s, I said, like, well, this guy isn't, you know. He's not going to live that much longer. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Right, you know? um, well, I mean, I think everyone thought the same of uh, Stan Lee, who also died this week. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, th- th- this is a week that does not like writers, apparently. It's just like. <laughs> no, apparently not. Apparently not. Look out, Neil Gaiman. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you said writers, Lee. Oh yeah, I'm sorry. sorry. sorry that was not not pompous assholes. I'm sorry. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, if he actually dies now, I probably would feel a little bad. Yeah, just, feel just a little bit bad, you know. But also, yeah, not... this this week it's been like writers dying and neo Nazis with meth on my Twitter feed. You know, like, <laughs> there's there there has been a lot of meth connected neo Nazis in my in my feed the last couple of days because the FBI is like raiding people and you know 
bunch of meth, bunch of meth head Nazi biker gangs. Just you know, oh, well, good. Yeah. The more, the merrier. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, uh, we're gonna take a quick little break. Uh, we'll play some music and some trailers for some much better podcasts than this one, and then we're gonna come back and talk about the other side of the wind. Looking for something different in your podcast library? Then why not check out the podcast Under the Stairs? I'm the host Duncan McLeish and joining me each week will be a special guest as we examine some classic old school horror favourites as well as some modern classics. That's not to say that we don't tackle some of the, let's say, more questionable entries into the horror genre. And if all that wasn't enough, we have a subset of shows called Baz V Horror, where our horror novice, The Baz, tackles horror in all shapes and forms to see who will come out victorious. So what are you waiting for? The show can be found at podcastunderthestairs.wordpress.com and on Stitcher and iTunes. The Podcast Under The Stairs is a proud member of Legion Podcast Network. This is Duncan McLeish from Under The Stairs, signing off. You go through your week with the same old routine. What you really want is some blood and thunder in your life. Well, friend, you found it. The Chromecast is an adventurous journey through the history of two-fisted pulp stories with your hosts, John, Josh, and Luke. We have action, horror, and adventure, all through the lens of pulp luminary Robert E. Howard. Don't just stay in your ordinary life. Find your pulp life at thecromcast.blogspot.com. The Chromcast. The Chromcast. The Chromcast. A podcast for the barbarian at heart.
All right, the other side of the wind from technically 2018, but uh, you could also say any year between 1970 and 76 as well, if you want to. Jay can't afford the Ernest Hemingway of the cinema. I just want to know what he represents. The man is infested with disciples. I'm the apostle. Just like me and God. How could you tell us apart? Patrick's new movie? The Other Side of the Wind. What's that about the movie? We don't talk about the movie. So you old guys are trying to get with it. Is that what this movie's about? Well, we don't actually know. What do we know? Jake is just making it up as he goes along. He's done it before. Movies and friendship. Those are mysteries. Mr. Hannaford, could you please slow down? Mr. Hannaford! What he creates, he has to wreck. It's a compulsion. Want me to bring you another spot? <laughs> we'll have our own movies. A real movies. The other side of the movie. Well, here it is, if anybody wants to see it. Directed, of course, by Orson Welles. Uh, written by uh, Oja Kadar and Orson Welles. Did, did I pronounce her front, first name? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, Kadar. Oh, yeah, Kadar. I, I, yeah. I know it's like originally was Olga, and Orson told yeah, her to change it. Or... She, she's from Zagreb originally, and uh, it's, a, it's a completely different name. Sorry, we'll look it up here. Olga, Olga Palinkas. Yeah, in, uh, in Croatia. So uh, yeah, no. So uh, starring the great John Huston as J.J. Jake Hannaford, uh, Oha Guitar is uh, actress or the Red or the Red Indian. Uh, Peter Bogdanovich as Brooke. This this movie, by the way, any anyone who is like sensitive to non politically correct things. Yeah, no, this is the, we'll we'll get into that. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Peter McDonovich is <laughs> the fact Potter that the Ray. fact that our lead actress is credited in some sense as the Red Indian, Red Indian. <laughs> does tell you. I mean, there, there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on in this film. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, Peter Bogdanovich as Brooks Otter Lake. Susan Strasberg as Juliet Rich. Norman Foster as Billy Boyle. Bob Random as Oscar John Dale. Lily Palmer as Zara Vasquez Valesk, I believe. Yeah. Uh, Edmund O'Brien as Pat Mullins, Mercedes McCambridge as Maggie Noonan, Cameron Mitchell, the great Cameron Mitchell as Matt Zimmy Zimmer, Gregory Sierra as Jack Simon, Kathy Lucas as Mavis Hinscher, Dennis Hopper as himself, Cameron Crowe as a party guest of uh-huh. all fucking people, and Rich Little as a party guest who was originally uh, supposed to be Brooks Otterlake, but he had to pull out, and so they had to redo all the scenes with uh, Bogdanovich. So, <laughs> yeah, Paul Mazursky also uh, plays himself mm-hmm. in the film, uh, who we remember from a couple of the things he did: Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. Right. You know, just there, there's a ton of like people who just appear in the in the film as uh, basically the journalists and the party guests are you know mostly like directors that Wells knew. <laughs> well, know? yeah, exactly. Like these people are all playing hangers-on and the entourage basically of uh, John Huston's Jake Hannaford. And since this movie is 
very autobiographical, even though Orson Welles sweared up and down that it wasn't. It only made sense that he'd cast basically all his crew, basically, in, in this right. film, you know, all of his friends just pulling favors and stuff. So here's the synopsis. <laughs> this this one's great. I thought about writing this up and I didn't have time. I, I apologize. Oh, I, was... I mean, goddamn, man. That would have took you a while, I think, to write the synopsis for this thing. I decided to watch the film again instead of writing the synopsis. That's how long it would have taken me to, like, even begin to get a handle on this. So, mm-hmm. But this is from someone called Noah Orent, and he says a Hollywood director emerges from semi-exile with plans to complete work on an innovative motion picture. There you yeah. go. <laughs> yeah. What a what a summary. No. Uh it's basically so it's about a film within a film, an unfinished film, about mm-hmm. an unfinished film. It's a old school Hollywood director who comes back from exile who's making a kind of artistic exploitation film. Mm-hmm. With a leading actress and a leading man, the film within the film is unfinished and largely uh, improvised on set, (laughs) it appears. The film follows this director's uh, 70th birthday party. And we know at the beginning of the film that he's eventually he's going to die in a car accident on the day of this. So this is like the last day of his life. And as we sort of follow party, we also kind of follow the footage that's been kind of hastily assembled to show to people at the party. And uh, we get a sense of the director's life and the kind of the the his existence of the people around him and his relationships with the people around him, and uh, some secrets that maybe uh, he wasn't quite comfortable with sharing, despite mm-hmm. the fact that he seems to be very open and uh, you know kind of warts warts and all kind of kind of guy. So uh, yeah, I guess that's my kind of impromptu summary there. That's much more uh, significant than uh, this shit Noah gave us. Uh, <laughs> yeah, fuck you, Noah. <laughs> yeah, you piece of shit. Fuck um, you for fuck you for writing two lines. How dare you? Uh, How dare yeah. you not please us? Mm-hmm. Yeah. With your uh, free labor. But yeah, so uh, what's your sort of general thoughts on this? I, I think I think I've spoken enough. Uh, just I kind of want to I kind of want to get yours first, okay? Because uh, I know that between the two of us, I'm a little bit more of a well aficionado. Yeah. I haven't seen all of his films. Um, I've seen. I was kind of looking at the list. I've seen maybe half of them. You know, it's always kind of like a. Yeah, Wells is somebody that I kind of deeply love what I see, and I kind of, but I've never kind of gone through and got done it systematically, kind of done them all. But I, you know, I already kind of have a, a bit of a history with this film. And uh, what's kind of Wells's later work, and so I'm actually interested to get kind of your impressions upon seeing it because I know you haven't kind of immersed yourself in some of that uh, to the degree that I have. Yeah, like I have seen like Citizen Kane, but it was like a long time ago, and honestly, sure. I'm just you know honestly don't even have the desire necessarily to rewatch it again to like better appreciate it for some reason sure. uh, that probably says more about me than anything else but is that no i know you've seen touch of evil are those the only kind of wells you've you've, uh, you've seen uh, well i've seen i've seen touch of evil <sighs> what else have i seen of his most of most of his stuff it's it's mostly his acting performances more than anything else sure. so, so you know like third man and stuff yep. like that mm-hmm. i'm i am aware you know of sure, of his sure. body the work just uh on on the fringes but this feels very radical for Wells in a lot of ways. Although from what I can gather by doing some reading here, this is kind of a natural progression from some of the stuff he was doing in the effort fake. Yeah, this is, this is very much exists now. uh, Effort fake is uh, just a phenomenal film for me. Like that's one of those, just that was a revelatory film when I saw that. Mm -hmm. Um, It is what it is. I think, you know, kind of Wells lost masterpiece in the sense that most people, 
think of Wells as this kind of early 40s, you know, this kind of 40s, 50s kind of black right. and white director. F for Fake is just as brilliant and radical and original in 1973 as Citizen Kane was in 1941 in a lot of ways. And we might end up doing that one. I think I, do, I, think I do want to cover that one, depending mm-hmm. on how you kind of feel about looking at more of the style. But the two of them you could definitely see as companion pieces. And in fact, they this would have been being shot right around the same time that he was doing editing work on F for Fake. Right. And you can see a lot of the, um, there's a very clear through line in the editing work between what's being done, particularly in kind of the first half of this film, what you see in F for Fake. Because there's the, a lot of cutting between sequences. Oh my and, God, uh, the, the amount of cuts in this film is insane. Yeah. The documentary, which is a companion piece for this on Netflix mm-hmm. as well, They'll Love Me When I'm Dead, it actually sort of goes more into interviews where he's talking about his cutting techniques and stuff mm-hmm. for this film. And man, the people were like sort of skeptical. Why are you doing this? <laughs> yeah. And, and, and he's like, I, I gotta, I gotta change it up. Basically. I gotta, I gotta make this uh, different. And it does have a very different feel like this movie. The first half of it blitzkriegs you with all of these cuts to different people. There's, it's basically a series of vignettes that keep popping in and out of each other. And they all surround the idea of all these people basically their their main focus is to be around this Hannaford guy and either suck off his fame or watch him fucking tumble down and, and, yep. and laugh at him basically. And because there's all these, uh, it's like this new Hollywood versus old Hollywood kind of idea. Like you, you have this, this party is set up by Hannaford's longtime friend who was, who acted in one of his movies and she yep. sets this party up to, to basically, Get in touch with the with the new kids, and, and maybe you know maybe it'll get your career going somewhere. I guess is kind of the idea. And he's doing this party in part to try to gain funding for his film too, because he's he's desperately trying to shop this around and get some funding for it to finish it, because he's broke basically from from what we get get as the movie progresses. And it man, becomes increasingly obvious that he's broke as mm-hmm. as the film goes on, and you know. In fact, you kind of realize they've, he's got like four days left before he just loses everything. And this was yeah. kind of the last chance to get to finish the movie and come back to Hollywood. Mm-hmm. So I was really impressed by the way this movie sort of told its story. You got to sort of piece stuff together. The, the first bit of the film kind of, as it's jumping in and out, it gives you little snippets of the background of everything that's going on here. So by the time you get into the sort of the main through line of the narrative, you kind of know what's going on. It, it, it's not confusing. Like if you, if you stick with it for a little while, it kind of snaps into place pretty quickly. I love all the different little characters. There's a lot about this that reminds me of both this and the film within a film. Reminds mm-hmm. me a lot of like Russ Meyer's stuff mm-hmm. from this period. Just the way it's done, the the way the dialogue's delivered. You can tell a lot of this stuff's improvised. Fucking John Huston's performance in this almost totally dashes this picture on the rocks and like just <laughs> it takes things over. Like it is it's almost kind of hard to get past his performance and and get deeper into the to the stuff. Yeah, overall, I like this a lot. I've watched it twice now. There's definitely a lot of stuff I've missed that I have to go back and, and look into. But upon these first two watches, I thought the way that it told its story was fairly brilliant, even though it was very scatterbrained in pieces. I mean, there there, there is a sense that the way this was shot and how it's been done over the years and how it's been sitting in vaults for years and then people brought it back and did the post-production on it. There's always this voice in the back of my head that goes, is this 
what Wells envisioned? Is this the final product that he envisioned? Is this really close to what he wanted this movie to be? And I don't know if we really know that necessarily, but at the same time, it's still just an amazing piece of film. Even if the, like the story doesn't work for you necessarily, Mm -hmm. just watching it's an experience. Absolutely. Yeah. I'll just, I'll say now this is uh, this is on my top 10 of the year and this may be my favorite film of the year. I came into this slightly skeptical. There's, uh, I have not watched the new Netflix documentary. I saw, again, many years ago, uh, the uh, documentary Orson Welles, A One-Man Band. This talks a lot about sort of Welles' life and kind of process during the later years of his life. He would basically just film a bunch of shit, you know? Mm -hmm. He did a bunch of kind of like short films. A lot of them were never really completed. He did a lot of just kind of shooting here and there on various projects when he had, you know, he'd just make money by acting and then he would go and like shoot stuff. Orson was a one man band. There's a lot of stuff that's, you know, you, you've got a lot of, you know, just kind of the fragments that he shot and, you know, you just kind of watch some great performances that he gave or some of the weird editing he was trying out. Um, And it included a couple of sequences kind of cut together from this film and includes like some of the footage from the early screening room where Mm. the child actor is trying to convince the money. Oh yeah. So it includes a bit of that footage and then it includes um, some of the stuff from the sex scene in the car. Oh, yeah. Although I don't think it includes that entire sequence, but it includes a big chunk of that. You know, you put those sequences up next to something like Citizen Kane or, you know, like, <laughs> and I was like, no, this is a very different kind of film. So, so I guess, I guess where I was kind of landing on is, you know, knowing that the way that he shot this stuff and that it was really fragmentary and knowing that, you know, he didn't really consider it completed yet. You know, they spent 30 years arguing over the final edit and, you know, different kind of creative teams. And you're just kind of like, it's, this is probably, you know, just kind of a, not really done. This is, this is kind of an undercooked project. It's really just like, we're going to see it. It'll be nice to see it. There's going to be some brilliant stuff in it, but it's going to feel a little bit like, kind of a half sketch of a movie as opposed to a finished movie. Right. That was not my experience watching this at all. I was amazed at how complete and how much of a clear narrative there is, um, particularly on a second viewing and realizing how much of the stuff, like I think maybe like it, the, the lore around the film overstates the degree to which it was shot in fragments, bits and pieces and, and mm-hmm. stuff, because it does seem like it was shot over the course of several years, but in like kind of very, concrete shooting situation so they would shoot for a week you know on this location he would get a big chunk of the film done and then he'd run out of money or he'd have to come back or he'd like have to move to a different location and that's why the film moves from location to location yeah but it does seem to have been like thought out as he was doing it yeah just sort of like he just kind of made it the way he had to make it but i don't get the sense watching the film i mean you could tell me that there was not this long history behind this film, but I would I would believe it based on, you know, because it feels very intentional. As far as how close it is to Wells' is sort of, you know, clearly there's this framing device with a Peter Bogdanovich, you know, kind of mm-hmm. narrating now. Apparently, originally, Wells himself was going to do that. Right. And, of course, the line there's a line included, like, cell phone cameras, which obviously... Uh, you know, Wells wouldn't have, you know, I think that's kind of the knowing nod to the audience that, yes, we are finishing this in 2018, that we're not actually seeing a version of this that would have been made in 1976 or even 1985 or, or whatever, you know. Um, yeah. So I think that's kind of what that's meant to be. That that framing device makes it more of an actual documentary in a way. Right. Here's the documentary about all of this shit that was filmed during the last night of this guy's, you know, thing. So, right. Right. Uh, so it's both, it's both, it's both like a pseudo documentary and a, and a feature film at the same time. Right. 
Yeah, I but I but I just just based on the internal logic of it, I mean, and, and again, I've seen F for Fake, and this feels very much of a of a piece with that. It would not surprise me that this is about as close as you're ever going to get to, you know, what Wells's original intention was. Especially since we know that both Kodar and Bogdanovich were involved in this. Yeah, and Kodar was uh, Wells's you know partner throughout the last years of his yeah, life. Yeah, like and Bogdanovich is essentially girlfriend. is essentially his you know. His right hand man for for decades. So, oh, uh, uh, there, there's a lot of uncomfortable, true to life stuff that comes uh, out in this film, especially oh, with yeah. Bogdanovich. <laughs> he Bogdanovich is essentially just playing himself in this film, really. Yeah. And, well, I, I think that there is a sense in which, I, I, you know, there this is it's very autobiographical in terms of, you know, sort of like generating character dynamics that were kind of from Wells's life. I mean, it's very mm-hmm. kind of one-to-one in that way, but I think it's also, I mean, we know that for instance, Wells and Bogdanovich had a very close relationship up until the time that Wells died. So yeah. there's not this kind of well, no, they separation. Had a, they, had there. A, they had a falling out for a little while. Yeah. Yeah. There was a period of a couple of years there where they had a falling out and this is from the documentary. Sure. Um, okay. Basically Bogdanovich said right, right around the time where he, sh- he shot uh, the movie with uh, Burt Reynolds in it. Um, it was from the seventies. And after that, Burt Reynolds and Orson Welles started palling around a lot, apparently. <laughs> and because, and you know, and this is around the time where Orson Welles and he would admit it too basically became a big whore to try to like sell this movie and get money yeah. for it. And Bogdanovich kind of fell out of favor with Orson because Burt Reynolds didn't like Bogdanovich that much. Hmm. Um, and he said they, they kind of made up at the end, but it, the, the majority of the relationship by the time leading up to Wells death uh, was phone calls that just weren't the same as their hmm. close relationship before. So yeah, no. So I, I guess uh, you know, I, from what I had known, you know, from the from kind of earlier documentaries, that none of that really came out. I was I was under the impression that they they had you know a, a close relationship. So no, that does make it sound a lot more. <laughs> yeah, it, it made me kind of sad to see this. And when you see the opening narration with Bogdanovich right. as 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 Otterlake, it's like you're. I think you're kind of speaking from the heart here. Like you, you there, there, there's parts of this in that the, in the character you're playing that are probably fairly true to life to how you were back then. And, mm-hmm. and you saying you didn't want this film to be released in character uh, because you were afraid of how it would make you look. I think it kind of bleeds in the real life a little bit too. No. Yeah. No, there's, there's a, uh, one of the things that gets kind of overlooked in Wells's work is the degree to which it's, he was a deeply metafictional artist from the beginning, even his early stage productions, he was often kind of like questioning that line between what's on stage and what's, uh, you know, and what's, what's out, uh, in the well, audience. I, I think, um, I think, uh, war of the worlds kind of, Oh yeah. War of the <laughs> yeah. worlds is war of the worlds is one of those like classic, you know, bits of, you know, what we're going to do is we're going to, you know, kind of make you question whether this is real or not real. And ditto, I mean, uh, one of his early projects, one of the things that he was looking at doing in the early 40s was an adaptation of Heart of Darkness, which would be yeah. shot very much the way that Hitchcock's Rope was later shot, um, one, where it was going to uh, be all, not only not only all one take, but all from the point of view of a central character. So it was going to be shot like point of view, all one, you know, seemingly all one take. Mm-hmm. 
Wow. Um, which imagine trying to do that in like 1943. Or, you know, like, hey, the, ha- the, 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 the funny thing is the uh, the uh, Elijah Woods uh, remake of Maniac mm-hmm. that came out a few years ago is remakes that film uh, from the, the 1980s and does it all in first person with, with a, the killer's perspective. Kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah, nice. All that, all that saying, all that to be, you know, just kind of pointing out the degree to which Wells's work was always kind of made you question, you know, what is the role of the viewer here, and how much of this is real, and how much is not, and uh, you know, he's very much a guy who had his heart on his sleeve in a lot of this stuff. He's very much, mm-hmm. you know, I think he gets kind of put in this box as this highly technical director, which he was because he was. I mean, you can watch his films with the sound off and not know anything about it. I mean, you know. Like the first couple of times I saw Touch of Evil, I didn't even follow the plot at all because I was just watching the fucking photography oh, and that, that fucking film, opening know? shot. Yeah, I mean or that whole film. I mean, you just I was I, you know you put that on and rewatching it, it's just it's just so stunning. You just I you know for me I I have to actively work to follow the plot. I'm just like looking at the damn thing, you know. <laughs> um, and I feel that way about, about a lot of this. You know, the first watch was kind of more just to kind of get the general impression of it particularly that that kind of opening 30, 45 minutes, which is um, really fragmented and really it is kind of telling four or five different stories all intricate together, but all kind of following an emotional logic. And then, you know, kind of once you get to the party and you get a little bit more, you kind of, you kind of get a little bit more of a, a sense of, you know, we're all kind of hanging out. We're all kind of getting this. But a lot of this, I mean, you, again, you know, imagine seeing this, you know, something that looked a lot like this in 1976. Yeah. It would have been you know, the equal to anything that Altman was doing. I mean, this is Altman's peak period and Wells is doing that exact same sort of idea. And in a lot of ways is doing it in a more, in a more stylistic fashion, even than Altman was doing it at that. Yeah. Time, a lot of the know? dialogue I was saying does come off uh, uh, Russ Meyerish in certain ways, uh-huh. just because the characters are kind of big. Cause you just sort of yeah. see them off and on. And every time they're on screen, they got to project a little bit more just, you know, for, for their one little brief shot they're in. But the dialogue is kind of Russ Meyerish, and it's kind of the same thing Altman was doing in a lot of his films. So right. it's like Wells, he's a, he's a filmmaker that was still like up with the times. Like he, he's not John Huston's character uh, right. in, in that regard. Like he, he's very much up with the times and he's very much progressing and changing and doing things. And he's aware of what's going on in film. And I find it pretty pretty interesting how sort of deeply personal this film is in a lot of ways where if the autobiographical elements come out it's like so yeah wells was very aware of his flaws and yep. and at the same time it's like i think you're being kind of harsh on yourself here <laughs> i feel like i mean yes it's clearly autobiographical but it's also he's telling a story within that construct mm-hmm. as well and i and i think that that's kind of the where i where i land on it to a certain degree is that He's using his own life as sort of inspiration. Um, it's also, I mean, <laughs> one of the inspirations, one of the inspirations for this is Ernest Hemingway, who mm-hmm. Wells knew going back to the late 30s. And, you know, when Hemingway killed himself in 61, you know, originally the lead character was going to be a bullfighter. Like, yeah. And, well, you think about the Hemingway-Wells relationship where they met when Wells was literally, you know, like, I think like 20 or 21. So in a sense... Wells gets to be both, you know, Wells could have been the Otter Lake character yeah. in that kind of version of the, you know, and so I, there, there is this sort of sense of, you know, there's an old man and a young man, and there's a relationship between them, and one of them is more financially successful than the other, 
and you know one is you know there's kind of a father son kind of like fucked up relationship there there are all these kind of relationships of hangers on and all this stuff and again this is a world that wells knew very very well he spent decades as this kind of emeritus of cinema in in europe kind of traveling around and being this kind of like famous guy who went to parties but who couldn't get anybody to give him money to finish his damn movies he was like, like you're a genius uh no i'm not gonna give you fifty thousand dollars god damn you know it's you, you get that over and over and over again and i mean a lot of it was you know people saw him as unreliable that he wouldn't ever finish anything and i mean there's yeah. a lot of truth to that there there you know we talked about this a bit a couple of you know a couple mm-hmm. episodes ago. You know, to, to what degree you know if you know Wells were working today with access to like digital video editing tools and you know really could kind of just bang it out and get it done. Whether he would continue to kind of like fiddle with stuff for years and never really finish anything, or if he would have been able to kind of you know move on from projects. Uh, I think that's. I mean. I don't know. I think that's an open question. Yeah, the the documentary, almost everyone they interview in the documentary basically asserts that, no, actually, the whole idea, this sort of popular opinion of Wells being kind of wishy-washy and never wanting to finish a film because some people would say he was definitely afraid of finishing a film. Most of them say it's bullshit. Most of them just say that the reason he wasn't finishing some of these films is because he wanted to get it 100% right. Yeah, He he didn't want to fuck him up. So, I mean, you know... Well, and and having a perfectionist impulse, you know, when it leads to results like this, I mean, you mm -hmm. you can see how, like, again, in 1970, in 1976 or so, when they stopped shooting you know the idea of like how do you even explain to an editor how to make this you know yeah and you know that he actually did a lot of the own, a lot of the editing for his own films one of the things i think i mentioned back when we did stagecoach was you know orson wells learned how to make film like he learned how to be a director by watching stagecoach over and over again and then re-editing it to like learn how to recut things and i would right. love to see some of the assemblages that he did of stagecoach knowing what he was going to go on to do <laughs> um, editing is this huge part of his pro- part of his process, and so that's, um, uh, that's funny. That reminds me of a little bit of dialogue that uh, Dennis Hopper has in in the film. I'd like to sell my movies to John Wayne's audience. I'd like yeah. I'd like those people mm-hmm. to see my movies. <laughs> and at that point, John Wayne was you know like this sort of uh, emeritus of cinema. I mean, he was he was still alive for another couple of years. He was kind of on his way out, but he was this kind of giant of old Hollywood. I mean, it's made during that very specific period when the old studio system was kind of dead. And this kind of newer kind of independent model was kind of picking up steam. You know, Hollywood in in this era is just, it's just just like fascinating kind of world that we're in. And we're, we're still kind of like living in the, in the vestiges of that to some degree. It's just amazing to see, you know, now to kind of get this new document that was kind of made then with the perspective of someone who very clearly kind of knew that world. Yeah. So what's your favorite performance in this? Cause, um, I've got, I've got you mean a couple other, other than John other, Houston. <laughs> other than John Houston, like what about the uh, sort of uh, Pauline Kale uh, stand? Yeah, um, she's definitely. I think she's. She, I don't know. It's hard to say underrated because I don't. I've been. I've deliberately kind of avoided a lot of the kind of critical response to this. But yeah, Susan Strasberg is is kind of amazing in this. I think she is in a lot of ways sort of the moral heart of the film. I mean, she's the you know. And the thing is, again, it, she's based on Pauline Kale. She's based on kind of Wells didn't particularly like Kale because Kale had written a piece critical of the fact that, you know, Wells was never able to finish a film. And yet, you know, in the writing of this and in the performance, I mean, it's, it's pretty clear that 
the film knows that she's basically right about like what a piece of shit this guy is, you know? Yeah. I love her. I love the fact that she gets to kind of waltz through the film and just kind of be that beating heart of it in a film that's this full of performances. It's very easy for, um, you know, people to kind of fade into the background. And uh, I think that she really stands out, not only because she's kind of one of the strong, I mean, one of a, I mean, there are like two really strong female performances in this film, mm-hmm. um, but she actually has a line. So there is yeah. That. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, uh, she's not the only, she's not the only uh, woman in the film. In fact, there we have a couple of other kind of really nice women in this film, but I think she really um, adds that sort of yang to John Houston's ying. You know, there is a sense of, you know, kind of, yeah. Um, I really like that element of it, you know? Well, she, yeah, she's she's actually kind of like playing detective throughout the entire film. She's trying to mm-hmm. hit at just what the central thing is that uh, Hannaford's trying to basically hide and put up walls against. And it, it's interesting because there's a bunch of these sort of characters in this film that are like going at him. Like there's that one guy, I think it's Jack Simon. He's mm-hmm. like another filmmaker or something like that who's... He he's also been like called a a sort of a, a mimic of Hannaford, I guess, and he and he plays up this macho persona or whatever. Yeah, he's, apparently he's based on John Milius. Yeah, which you know makes sense, and and I mean, and he's always at odds with Otter Lake, and he's, you know, and he I, I guess he kind of sees himself a bit in Otter Lake and kind of resents it, you know, like you get sort of get that idea. I love the uh, Norman Foster performance in here as Billy Boyle. Oh uh, yeah this was confirmed for me when I was reading the notes. I was like, I was thinking that's kind of Mickey Rooney kind of like yeah. child actor turned kind of sad. <laughs> forgotten. I keep, I keep looking at that. I've watched that performance. And I'm like, I swear I've seen this guy in something. And I looked at his page and I'm like, I don't, I no. don't know. You know, I, but he reminds me so strongly of someone. And I just can't like place it, but it's such this strong performance. I mean, this guy who's, you know, this kind of ex-alcoholic, ex-child star, he's, he's been off the sauce for nine years. <laughs> he eats he eats candy as a, as a, you know, kind of a coping mechanism and, you know, just the stress of the uh, of this day and of this kind of like falling apart of everything in his life goes back to the hooch. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's a, there's, there, there's a tragedy there and it just kind of passes through, you know, the film and the, in the you know, in that kind of, I almost didn't notice it the first time. You know, like, you know, because there's so much else in the film I was, I was, you know, paying attention to, but suddenly, well, this guy's back, fell off the wagon. And so, you know, there you go. Honestly, it's actually hard to pick out favorite performances in this, really, because I mean, there's so many, there's, there's not a bad performance in the film, you know, with that. Uh, I would like to, I mean, Oya Kodar, I think is uh phenomenal. She does give a completely wordless performance in this. Uh, She she laughs. That's all she gets. Yeah, yeah. She is uh, nude during a significant mm-hmm. portion of the film. You know, in in her in her there, glory. There, there's a sex scene that turns into a POV sex scene where it basically puts you in the place of uh, yep. yeah, yep. You know, if you're if you're a fan of that, just wait till you see F for fake. That's all I'm going to say. Oh, there, okay. you know? <laughs> Kodar again. I'll say it again. It was she was his partner. Uh, was his mm-hmm. partner through a lot of this, and clearly his muse, and clearly he loved her, and the camera loves her. She really makes the film within a film compelling. It's um, a really it's it's a weird like. Well, first off, it, it it's kind of a satire parody of European art house films, right? Yeah. Of, that, of that time, and again, kind of half European art house, half exploitation. Yeah, again, you know, like and, that's where it's getting that sort of uh, Russ and, Meyer and vibe. Well, and it, apparently, Wells shot that in like a couple of months, in you know, like in seventy or seventy-one. Mm-hmm. That stuff was done way, way early, and uh, 
it's kind of amazing just how effective some of that he could make that and it's like i mean i think i even saw in an interview where he was he he said oh yeah i kind of shot this thing it's not it's an interesting style but it's not a it's not a kind of film i'd actually want to make yeah no that's like well jesus christ this is like (laughs) this is you just like dashing this off in a a couple of months like jesus christ man you know yeah he 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 made it exclusively for a fictional character he made it for hannaford hannaford's weirdo art art film again i was saying it reminded me of russ meyer in a way because it does have that exploitation vibe and it's also by the time you get to the end of it it's also this weird radical feminist picture at the same time (laughs) and definitely has i mean although of course hannaford has the uh you know he's i mean Hannaford's a bigot in the film. Like, oh yeah, not, he's let's a, not get a piece of shit. Yeah. He's a piece of shit. He's a racist. He's like you know, God is a woman because mm. she has capricious, you know, like like he's essentially arguing that God can has to be a woman because the universe is like fickle and uncaring and therefore only a yeah. woman. And, <laughs> and he's saying this to the like Pauline Kale stand-in, who is you know clearly um, yeah no it's it's such a and again oh. it's such a like kind of a knowing thing that like you know clearly wells knows what an asshole this guy is mm-hmm. if he's kind of putting those kind of words in his mouth you know there's a, oh that there's that, that we're, we like we like john houston because he's an amazing performance and because yeah. he's fun to watch but i think we also recognize what a complete dickhead he is oh yeah there there's a lot of funny stuff in this but then you get really uncomfortable that scene where billy boyle brings this teacher from a a school that oh, uh, the star was in he brings it to the table and they so, start so the central mystery of the film is that the the lead in the film within a film this oscar john dale is how he's gonna but yeah, his real Bob name Brandon. is oscar the, the real uh kind of mystery of the film the thing that we're kind of one of the many kind of threads we're following is why did this guy leave the picture? Because like the fact that this guy has left the picture, kind of the the coffin nail to you know this film isn't ever going to actually get made. Yeah, um, and they're actually actually going to get finished. Um, and why, one of the reasons why he can't get funding to to finish the rest of it. When you kind of learn that this guy wasn't really who you know John Houston really thought Hannaford really thought he was, and then maybe maybe it was who he thought he was, and then you know there there's a lot of kind of mystery there behind you know kind of kind of what that was, but. We are introduced to kind of a headmaster or a kind of a teacher at this mm-hmm. like boarding school that you know this guy John Dale had attended you know before being discovered as an actor. And so yeah, go ahead and describe the scene. Yeah, so bring him to the table, and at first Houston doesn't know who the fuck this guy is, and then and <laughs> and honestly, it's like, why did you bring this guy here? And so they they meet and they start talking, and and this guy is very nervous. Um, mm-hmm. he's coming to the party. Cameras are on him constantly because cameras are on everybody. There's like a million cameras at this party. Right. And he seems himself like he must be a homosexual character. They, they he, seem he's to... definitely played as kind of the mincing stereotype. Yeah, I think there's, yeah. a, there's definitely some indications in dialogue that the teacher and John Dale had had some kind of like sexual relationship. Yeah, because he tells the story of John's real origins. Mm-hmm. that Hannaford wasn't aware of. It almost feels like he makes up a story like, oh, a teacher in the school had sexual relations with him of some sort. Right. And he and he was let go or whatever, you know? And immediately Hannaford, he just starts well he doesn't quite rage, but you can see he's there's there's some seething rage going on in him because he feels betrayed, he feels tricked. And he just starts outright calling this guy a faggot. He's just right. And he says it multiple times, and then he, he, he does. <laughs> and then he tries. Then he goes further, and and tries to 
calm the guy down. Do you want to take a dip in my pool? And then he uses that to humiliate the guy because the guy's like, well, where should I change? Change right here in front of God. You know, it's, it is, and of course, it, the whole thing of the other side of the wind is, you know, God is making the wind and, you know, who mm-hmm. makes the wind. But a filmmaker, I mean, you know, you know, Hannaford literally is comparing himself to God. And then the film within the film has the voice of God kind of speaking onto the tra- you know, so there is this kind of, you know, again, the metaphor, even the meta text becomes meta text in this film. Yeah, some degree, and, you know, and that doesn't that the that the creepiness doesn't stop there either because there's also well, this is double creepiness because uh, Brooks Otherlake has this really young muse who Bogdanovich right. also had in Civil right. Shepherd. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and so we have a stand-in for that that Hannaford sort of gets a little too touchy-feely with at parts. Yeah, no, there, there's a definite, uh, you know, yeah, no, that, that gets a little... Uh, it's, you know. it's, it's something, man. Like, th- this yeah, film does not hold back. On although that, although that, that young actress, uh, apparently she never really... I mean, I looked at her IMDb page. She's only, literally in this. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think she's, again, quite a nice little natural performance yeah. by, um, you know, let's see if I can find her name here. Uh, she was almost impossible to kind of locate. Uh, Mavis, Kathy Lucas, wasn't it? Kathy Lucas, there she yeah. is, yeah. And yeah. Uh, again, yeah, it's apparently based on Simple Shepherd. Yeah. yeah, no, it's, and she's she's great, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, it is like, man, what else did she go do? Nothing. She did nothing, nothing else. yeah. This is it. <laughs> I also just want to mention uh, one of my favorite performances is from one of my favorite actors, Cameron Mitchell. Mm-hmm. Who's, he's he's the makeup effects, special effects guy. Yeah. Zimmy. And, and Zimmy. Zimmy, yeah. Uh, Matt Zimmer, who is constantly fired by Hannaford all the time. Like every... every Fi- he, he's fired and rehired doing the makeup. And yeah. he spends most of his time with a bunch of dummies of uh, John, John Dale. John Dale, yeah. With the, you know, with thought that like, oh, we're just going to like do a bunch of like close like from behind the thing with these dummies. And uh, clearly uh, as we learn one of the final shots of the film that was never ever going to actually work yeah and when the head falls off of (laughs) (laughs) but i just love that he's this ultimate outsider to everybody Mm -hmm. at the party like he just sits outside the party the entire movie and he just sort of comments on them and 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 sort of and just sort of shakes his head like he's he's the he's the ultimate outsider he's also kind of like the ult, ultimate punching bag after Billy Boyle for Hannaford cuz he's always firing him right so he's always stressing him out it's like he never knows if he has a job or not but i like that he's kind of he's almost him and Susan Strasberg's uh, characters are kind of good connections for the audience to, yeah. to come into the world and, and and look at it you know so you got one that's embedded right into this world and trying to figure out the central mystery. And then you got one outside this world, just sort of looking in and commenting on it at the same yeah, time. Yeah. So. I mean, there's even, there are even like sequences where, uh, you know, he's kind of sitting there and talking and you kind of get the sense of like, there's no way they could actually be hearing him from the, the patio, from the pool. Mm-hmm. And yet they are. And partly that's sort of a filmmaking trick that, that Wells right. is using here. But uh, some of that is also, uh, I mean, it's sort of designed to sort of indicate his, his distance from kind of the, the, the warm central fire that is, you know, the money, you know, the kind of influence that Hannaford has. And I, and I think there is a, I think you're right. I think there is a, a, a kind of like a, a really nice kind of character dynamic there of him just kind of, well, I'm going to keep working as long as he hires me. And then when yeah. he fires, he'll rehire me eventually. It's going <laughs> to be fine. I will say one other character I really like, one other performance is uh, Lily Palmer as mm-hmm. Zara Valeska. Mm-hmm. The, uh, she, she was originally supposed to be played by Marlene Dietrich. 
who was uh, like kind of an old friend of Orson Welles. Oh, yeah. One interesting thing here, and I think it's fairly obvious once you kind of know it's true, but she actually was not on set. Everything that she shot was kind of in another location. Yeah. And then it's just edited to kind of look like she, she's she's in frame. And I think from a 2018 perspective, it's fairly clear that that's what's happening, you know? But again, I think it uh, I think it works in the film. And again, she kind of, like Cameron Mitchell's character, she does kind of stand outside she's and kind of comments yeah. on the, the kind of the, the... You almost believe that what she's doing is sort of speaking in like other documentary footage and commenting on the film as it's happening. Yeah. But then at times Don Houston kind of speaks to her and the other characters are, you know, I mean, she is involved in the story to some degree, but a lot of the footage of her, it almost does feel like it's sort of edited in from another source, which just kind of speaks to the kind of intentionally jumbled kind of nature of time to a little bit, you know, the different film stocks and the different kind of ways that mm-hmm. it's shot. There's also this sense, I mean, you know, we've got kind of cameras uh, all over the place and we're kind of, you know, it's sort of implied that what we're watching is this assemblage from a bunch of different pieces, but there's not an attempt to sort of make that explicit in the text where we kind of see like somebody shooting and then we know that it's shot from that particular camera. There's cameras all around. And I really like the idea. I mean, you know, there is, you know, from a technical perspective, it'd be really interesting if they had actually shot it in a way so that you could actually piece together exactly who is shooting each individual <laughs> piece. But yeah. I think that kind of would miss the point of, you know, the, I don't think the idea is that we're literally watching a documentary assembled out of footage shot that night. We're watching something that's sort of made in the style of the documentary yeah. made that night. You know, we're watching something that's kind of, I mean, it, Oliver Stone kind of lands on the same kind of technique. I mean, years and years later with JFK. That's true. Using, yeah. um, doing the kind of the, the mix of black and white and different kind of yeah. film stocks. And it's also, I mean, Wells, just as a filmmaker at this time, you know, kind of working on a zero budget. He shot Chimes of Midnight literally silent and then would dub the voices in later because he just didn't have money to throw up sound equipment. And so there is this kind of like, uh, you know, we'll just shoot it like a silent and just kind of figure it out in the editing. And I think there is a lot of sense of that. We'll just use whatever film stock we've got. But I really love the look of the black and white here. Um, Mm -hmm. Big chunks of this film are shot in black and white, but they don't feel like a 40s or 50s kind of old school black and white. There's almost this golden sheen to kind of the black and white photography. It's it's a very warm kind of sense that I get from from a lot of the black and white here, Um, especially in the party itself. I mean, it's I mean, again, just gorgeous fucking cinematography i mean it's uh, it's they cleaned a lot of this stuff up it's, it's amazing the the outside the stuff outside the film within a film is shot in like one three three or something along those lines like it, uh-huh. it's, it's it's almost tv ratio i think it's like one three seven or something like yeah. that and then it's the actual film within a film's totally anamorphic it's widescreen everything right. Some of this footage is so well cleaned up that it looks like it was shot last week. It's oh, yeah, just that yeah. good. Yeah, no, and, and again, that's kind of one of those uh, advantages of waiting until 2018 is that you can do <laughs> like a, a really nice digital cleanup of this. I mean, if it if you'd done like some shitty version of 1992 and then later oh, yeah. decide, oh, yeah, now we're going to clean it up. I mean, it never would have you never would have had this experience of, you know, getting to see it for the first time with it looking as, as good as it's possibly ever going to look. And I, I, I mean, yeah, you're right. It's gorgeous. I mean, it's just fucking gorgeous movies. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, I I am deeply in love with this film. I've seen it twice. Just just to, again, just to uh, just to kind of pull out one like particular moment. I love the uh, the scene in like the biker bar, like the hippie bar. Oh yeah. And then in the bathroom where there's a oh, scene yeah. where you know 
uh, Olya Kodar, you know, is kind of like soaking wet and she like takes off her like kind of outer clothing. And then there's this girl like staring at her and there's, there's, there's some weird kind of stuff going on where, you know, the film within a film is kind of taking advantage of this hippie subculture while also kind of looking at it from outside and thinking of it as kind of dirty and kind of nasty. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I think Wells kind of understands it in a better sense than Hannaford does, maybe, if you kind of get where I'm going with this. You get the sense that, you know, Wells thinks it's bad, <laughs> that mm-hmm. Hannaford thinks this is uh, disgusting and awful. So, uh I don't know, but there's some there's some really nice little like kind of silent character work between Oya Kodar and then this young girl who's like yeah, kind of staring who, like, at her and takes like, her takes her dress and puts it over her face and yeah yeah, yeah no like, it's it's some pretty nice stuff and not just because it's I mean Kodar and, is fucking gorgeous yeah I should know. mention yeah Kodar's walking through this bathroom it must be the biggest fucking bathroom in the world too it, it, well, it think about think about how many people are fucking in that bathroom yeah, every <laughs> stall is full of like two or more people fucking <laughs> and they all they all fucking peek out of their stall to look at her. And then once she leaves, then they all go back to the stall, and then like all the occupied things go back yeah. on the fucking is like it's pretty fucking great. The the only other big takeaway when I the can... only when the when really all of them should have been like, hey, you should come and join. You know? Yeah. Like, yeah, well, I think I think they all I think they all do want to do that. Like every character right. in that film wants to fuck her. Yeah, but but at the same time, it's like she's so above them all. It's like no, I choose who I'm going to fuck. So uh, you're out of luck. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The the only other big takeaway I, I, I think I can take from this is that uh, I don't feel bad about my uh, scotch drinking because apparently it's not excessive compared to yeah, John com- compared to John Houston. Yeah, no, I mean you know if you ever want to uh, not feel like an alcoholic. Just watch a film about a um, Hollywood party in the 70s, and every, you will not feel like an alcoholic. Literally every scene you see him in, he's getting a new drink. Like, <laughs> and it's, it's those tall whiskey glasses. Yeah, he's, he's got, like, highball whiskey glasses mm-hmm. that are, you know... He's literally drinking and driving in, like, his very first scene in this film. So, yeah. like, just... He's like, somebody pour me a drink while driving. And then they just hand him a drink, and, you know, that's just... Um, I'm also so glad that there's at least one scene where he finally fucking takes a piss too <laughs> yeah <laughs> and then he fires a rifle towards the end of the film man you know and, and you think lithium man he's had to drink is that's not that's not bad target practice there man you know it's, yeah it's no great, he's yeah. apparently he's the fastest gun in the west uh, apparently yeah so we we do have some budgetary... was there trivia for this film we I mean, might, there, might there be some details of this film that, that might go behind the scenes that might be interesting for the for the audience? Because I can't imagine that there's any, you know, kind of background yeah. detail. No, there 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 are there is some. Um by the way, you I'll, this is just gonna be some sort of sort of segmented stuff for that I that I picked out of Wikipedia. If you, if you want like a good rundown, there's basically like a small book on Wikipedia of the production history of this. Well, apparently I was I was looking on Amazon for this film because I will mm-hmm. actually buy a DVD Blu-ray of this when it's released, but it wasn't available. There is already a, an ebook available for um, that you can read about the making of the film. I haven't bought the book, but like just <laughs> just to let you know, if you go into Amazon and search other side of the wind for 9.99, you can get a book about the making of this film. So. Nice. So original budget for this was uh, two million dollars, and that's 1970 uh, U.S. dollars. That would be 12.9 million dollars in today's money, and which is they, still not. I mean, not much considering what like no, how much is small. on screen here. Yeah. Add on to that six million to complete it in today's in today's dollars. money. You know? Yeah. So, so you know, um, 
<laughs> 18, 19 million dollar movie, basically. Yeah. Right there. Let's go. In, in other words, this film was made for what Tom Cruise gets to take a shit. That's, yeah. You know, yeah. pretty much. Primary stuff was film 70, 76. Um, and of course, only it was just needing post production to finish this. John Houston's son, Danny Houston, looped over some of his father's dialogue in the 2018 post production for the film's final release. And it, and actually, in the documentary, he is eerily sounds like his, his dad <laughs> when he's talking. It's like, oh my God. That's he pretty awesome. Look, he doesn't look too much like his dad, but he sounds a lot like his dad. So that's pretty great. Initially, filming in this came to a halt in 71 when the U.S. government decided that Wells' European company was just a holding company and not a production company. So they decided they basically just threw a big tax bill at him. So that's why he had to stop and start doing all these projects to make money to pay off the tax bill. So that's, that's kind of so, why it didn't. So- Blame the IRS for this film not being made in 1972. Mm-hmm. Got it. All right. Wells filmed 96 hours of raw footage for this. 45 in the party scene, 51 hours for the movie within a movie. Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but again, I mean, it is it is a good, like, probably at least a third, if not a... I mean, it's probably about a third of the finished film, you know? Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, no, that's, that's a lot of footage. You know, that just, is, that's crazy (laughs) yeah (laughs) especially on like tiny budget like that you know that's that's the uh that's the other you know but a whole lot of that was probably just like no yeah just just keep just keep walking yeah 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 it's pretty it's pretty much like i'm gonna film your ass that's what i'm gonna do (laughs) yeah i just can't blame them there some of this was filmed in spain uh all of lily palmer's as uh zara that that or whatever all that stuff was filmed in Spain. The film's main production block did not begin until early 74 when major shooting of the party happened in Arizona. So mm-hmm. so basically half the film got finished around seven, you know 74 to 76. Of course, I, I'm sure most people are aware of this due to the fact that it took 48 years for the film to be completed. Most of the uh, actors uh, who appeared in it are now dead and they never got to see the final film. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, there's one there's one anecdote on Wikipedia where like this guy who was in his 90s at the time was yeah. like, you know, I I I don't think I'm ever going to get to see it and not even because he thought he was going to die soon because he was losing his sight. Mm-hmm. He died at 106 still not having seen the film. Yeah, that's fucking <laughs> And this is Orson Welles' only R-rated film. Oh, well, I believe it's also the only film of his that had the word motherfucker in it. So, you know. <laughs> and this should be no surprise as well. Many of the cast and crew work for free or low wages. Houston got some money out of it. He got $75,000, although he didn't get the total $75,000. <clears> Apparently, <throat> his his estate is still owed some of that sum. <laughs> I believe it. You know. Yeah. I'm I'm sure I'm sure that Netflix is going to make that right, you know. I'm, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Not that I, not that I think John Houston gave a shit because they were him. Him and Wells were best friends. So yeah, yeah. Gary Graver did not get paid for this at all. He was given Orson Welles' 1941 Academy Award statuette for Citizen Kane. And thanks. Uh. <laughs> well, you know, you can either eat or you can have. Uh, hey, look, uh, my old Oscar statuette from 40 years ago. Ah, well, you know. Yeah. Uh, And the big reason why this film was gone for so long is that Wells was funded in part by uh, someone called uh, Mehdi Boucherai, I guess, uh, the brother of the Shah of Iran. And (laughs) 
things sort of took a turn because yes, indeed, the Shah of Iran was overthrown. So there was a complex decades long legal battle over the ownership of the film, the original negative remaining in a vault in Paris. At first, the a revolutionary government of Ayatollah Khomeini had the film impounded along with all assets of the previous regime. So, and I, they do cover the, the court case of it in the documentary and how basically they lost the court case <laughs> due to, <laughs> due to some like French law that right. uh, was not defending the artist. It was defending the studios or well, of course, producers. Yeah. Right. Um, and of course, the choice between the artist and the capitalist, it's always going to be the capitalist that wins. Mm-hmm, yeah. Even in, even in Iran. <laughs> yeah. One more fun little piece here that I, I just thought was cute. In the Video Pirates segment of the film Amazon Women on the Moon from 1987, when the MCA ship gets overrun and the pirates raid the ship deck below, they find a treasure chest full of rare videos that are in gold video boxes. When the character Pirate Captain opens the box, one of them is Wells, the other side of the wind. So there you go. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. This has been one of those like famously unfinished films for, I mean, 32 years at this point. So, yeah. Yeah. Really great to to finally get to see it. And it's really, again, even better that it's actually really good. Yeah. You know, I would have liked, I would have loved to see it even if it had not been all that great. The fact that it is as good as it is, is just icing on the cake for me. Um, Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's it's not like fucking Stanley Kubrick and AI or something like that. It was like right, oh. yeah. I mean, imagine imagine if Steven Spielberg had gotten his hands on this in like nineteen ninety three, like you know, or you know, like like after he made Hook, then suddenly it's <laughs> like you know, now I've got the now I've got the cachet to come back and finish the other side of the wind. Imagine what Steven Spielberg would have done to this in the nineties. Plucky little kid characters who yes. their, their, their parents don't understand them and they're interrupting the government. You know, it's like he, he includes a little like wraparound segment, like digitally inserts using cutting edge mid nineties technology. Little Elijah Wood walking around the party, going, you know, like, but Mister, why you use language like that? <laughs> Are you my daddy? Yeah, you need to stop drinking and driving. <laughs> So yeah, uh, of course this is on Netflix. So go get it there, and also uh, watch the documentary. They'll love me when I'm dead. I think it's a really good companion piece of this. And honestly, you can watch it before or after, and it doesn't hurt the viewing of the film at all. So yeah, no, I I, I kind of decided to keep my uh, recording for this uh, pure and not watch the documentary yet. But I do plan on watching that here in the next uh, little bit. And I will also uh, highly recommend the uh, Orson Welles a one man band, uh, which. Mm-hmm was on YouTube the last time I checked, which was a few days ago. So, oh, cool. Uh, so, Daniel, what do you have programmed for us next time? Well, episode? I guess the question is, do you want to do a little more Wells right away, or do you want to take a little break and come back? Um, I could do more Wells. Because I'm tempted to say, let's just move right on and do F for Fake next week. And, uh, Sounds good. Yeah, all right. That's it. We're going to do F for Fake. Uh, for fake I hate is. that you're watching it, and the, you know, really, you should have watched F for Fake first. But uh, I think I think you'll I think you'll enjoy it anyway. And uh, it's uh, it's also uh, not as long. I I don't know. I don't <laughs> know. Maybe <laughs> it's a little under ninety minutes long, so it'll be a, a fairly quick watch for you. Yeah, well, I, so. I will say I will say this like two hour movie didn't feel like it though. Like it, no, it doesn't. It doesn't yeah. at all. Um, you know, partly because it's 
it, it moves. Uh, it, it's a very uh, kinetic film, despite the fact that it's a bunch of people talking. You're mm-hmm. constantly moving from location to location to location. And uh, whenever you kind of get tired of watching like old rich people talk in a room <laughs> and drink heavily, uh, you get long stretches of Oya Kodar wearing next to nothing. So mm-hmm. you know, yeah. that does help. The, that does help the film to uh, to to feel fresh and original whenever you're whenever you're watching it. So yeah, I think I think we'll go ahead and do it for fake. I think uh, I think it'll be a fun. It might not be as long an episode as this one was, but I think it'll be a nice uh, uh, a nice way to kind of do a little bit more wells and kind of get at some of the same uh, general concepts. So we'll do that next week. Cool. For fake it is. And Daniel, where can people find you on the interwebs? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Daniel Lee Harper. If you want to listen to me and three, well, two, uh, so James was there, but he had to kind of drop it early on. And he only says like three things in the episode, but there was a, there is a toot. Um, my British friends and I talking about the midterm American midterm elections and uh, various internet shenanigans with dickheads online in two parts. You can find that on the wrong with authority podcast feed. And I spent all last weekend editing that to get it up immediately. And please go listen to that. (laughs) And that's at wrong with authority.blogspot.com. Awesome. And you can find uh, this podcast at tmbdos.podbean.com, or you can find all the requisite links for our Apple podcast, YouTube, and our Facebook group. Join the Facebook group. Best way to get in touch with us and find out what's coming up on the podcast. And until next time, um, don't drink and drive, I guess. <laughs> no, don't. Do not. Do not. Like half the things that John Houston does in this film, don't. Just don't do it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> really, like three three quarters. Three quarters of the things that John Houston does in this film, you know. Yeah. Uh, so thanks for listening, guys, and uh, we'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye.
listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. For other episodes, our Apple Podcast, YouTube, and Facebook group links, as well as podcasts and websites of similar interest, please visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. Thank you. Drive through.